Well, good morning and what a great crowd. Uh, my name's Joe Wiltshire, if we've not met. I'm the senior minister here at St Barnabas and uh, this is my thumb and it's dislocated if you want to know. It's not a fashion accessory. I don't think everyone will be wearing these in the future just for fun. But anyway, but more importantly, let's pray to our great God as we come to his word. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the, your word, for its power, for the, the way that you show what life is like in this world and also who your son Jesus is. We pray, please, that you'll help us uh, as we come to terms with him this morning and uh, learn about faith and about doubt. Please be with us. Amen. Well, what a special occasion. Uh, the Gideons are here. Uh, that's Locke and Nate, not the, uh, the society. Uh, to have Levi baptised and... Uh, you look around and I, I don't know if you recognise everyone here. I doubt there's pretty much anyone who knows everyone who's in the room this morning. There's all sorts of friends and family have come and South Liverpool Church, it looks like, has turned up, uh, which is wonderful. And uh, we're here with our regular church family to, to encourage them, uh, particularly as they've just stood and declared their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And have declared their desire to raise and nurture Levi to know Jesus himself, that as he grows to maturity, he might have the same faith that they themselves have. Uh, in the introduction to the service we just had, uh, it says, God's promise is to grant forgiveness in his Holy Spirit to all who turn to Christ, yet children must themselves express their faith in God when they're able to do so. And that's because in the end, it's not water that's splashed on you that saves you or connects you with God it, or washes away your sin. It's a matter of faith. Uh, but what does it even mean to have faith? I, I reckon if we door knocked everyone from here up to Liverpool uh, and asked the question, what is faith? We get all sorts of different opinions and answers about that. But I reckon there'd be some pretty common ones opinions amongst them. I think a whole bunch of people would say, well, faith, faith's a leap in the dark, right? It's what you have when you believe in something despite there being any evidence for it. Uh, people talk about having blind faith, you're believing that when you've closed your eyes to the facts and to history and to reason and experience. Uh, the, the philosopher Voltaire in the 1700s defined faith that way as uh, believing when there is no evidence, uh, or something more positively, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, and not a great philosopher, but she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, uh, maybe you've heard of that, anyway, she says, faith is belief in what you cannot see or prove or touch, faith is walking face first and full speed into the dark. I'm not sure if that's faith or just an accident waiting to happen, uh, walking face first into the dark. Um, uh, but you'd meet others, as you did this door knock around the suburbs, who'd say something else about faith. They would say that faith is just a psychological crutch. It's something that only emotional cripples have. Uh, it's, it's what the weak, the gullible need to validate themselves and to be able to face the world and face the future. It, it, it faced only for the kind of people who, who believed that email when they got it. You've just inherited $10 million from the Prince of Nigeria. Click here to transfer your details. Uh, and they click, yes, please. 
But then you, so they're very anti-faith, those people, right, saying it's a psychological crutch. But then you've been another group who are really positive about faith, who say faith's great, but what they mean by it is that it's kind of a magical power that you can wield, uh, something by which you can control the universe uh, and your own personal circumstances, future and even destiny. Uh, Oprah Winfrey's been banging that drum for years. Uh, she's really into something called the secret. Do you know what the secret is? Uh, well, let me, let me read you what it is from the website. At this very moment, your life is being guided... I've got to say it in an Oprah way, don't I? Anyway, your life is being guided and influenced by universal forces that you may not even be aware of. And the most powerful of all is the law of attraction... The universal principle that states you will attract into your life whatever you focus on. When you focus on the abundance of good things in your life, you will automatically attract more positive things into your life. But if you centre yourself on negative thoughts and only focus on what you lack in life, then you will ultimately attract negativity in your life and what you want most will continue to elude you. And for people like that, faith basically wishful thinking, but it's wishful thinking, they say, has this powerful effect and, and as you think positive vibes, the universe responds and, and as it goes on, and, and these teachers are absolutely serious about it, they say that you will gain popularity, you will gain wealth, you will gain health, success, and you will even manifest material blessings into your life uh, by the power of your belief. When you came here today, I take it it was, you know, well, you might have been a regular church member and forgot there was something else on, but you know, uh, when you came thinking, oh, we love uh, Locke and Nate or we want some of the cake that Kip brought in, you know, it's amazing out there. Uh, what, what did you think faith was? Did you think it was one of those three things, that it's a leap in the dark? or that it's a psychological crutch that some people, <clears throat> maybe they need, <laughs> uh, or that it's this you know, universe-bending power, this magic. Uh, and, and when the service says children must express their faith in God, did it mean one of those, or, or did it mean something else entirely? In our reading from Matthew's Gospel today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, we've been working through Matthew's Gospel uh, Jesus said to the woman in that reading, your faith has saved you. What's he talking about? Well, it's not any of those three things that people commonly think of. In fact, the Bible would say if you're into any of those kinds of faith, either leaps in the dark or psychological crutches or, uh, or magic, uh, then you're in real trouble and you'd be a fool if that's the kind of faith that, that you have. What the Bible means by faith, what God means, what Jesus means is this. Faith means to trust, to rely, to depend on something or someone because you're persuaded by the evidence that it's reliable and it's worthy of your trust. The kind of faith that God wants us to have is one where we've checked out the facts and we've been convinced, persuaded and, and when you rely on what is trustworthy, there's, there's something to back it up. And people exercise that kind of faith every day in all kinds of ways. They just don't call it that. But that's what the Bible means. 
You think about the chair or the pew that you're sitting on currently. Uh, When you went to sit on it, you were exercising faith in it, as the Bible sees it. You probably didn't go through it all blow by blow in your head, but subconsciously what you did was you looked at it, uh, you, you thought, well, chairs generally, they, they're pretty good at holding me up and, and I feel better because the weight's off my feet. You know, I've sat in lots of them before and, and I bet that heavier people than me have sat in this particular chair. Just look at the minister. I bet he sat there sometime and it held him up. Yeah, and you presume that that's not from a broken chair. No, that's a soccer injury, not from a chair. So, um, you know, the chair, the pew looks pretty sturdy. It's been there a long time and uh, it doesn't look like anyone's fiddled with it. It's, it doesn't appear to be broken. And, and your brain does that checklist without you being conscious of it every time you go to do something like sit down. It's not an ec- a, a leap in the dark, is it? Trusting the chair. You know, trusting yourself to something despite all the evidence of your eyes telling you something else. It's sitting down is not a psychological crutch and when really you're, you're lying flat on the ground right now, but, you know, it makes you feel good to believe that you're sitting in a chair, right? It's not that, right? And, and it's not that uh, you willed that chair into existence the moment you went, I'm going to sit right here. I'm just going to think nice things and suddenly it materialised in front of you or behind you where it needed to be. <laughs> you, you trusted your experience, you trusted history, you trusted uh, the evidence and you knew it would take the load off your feet and so you sat, you exercised faith and that's what the Bible means by faith. If that's the case, let me ask you what's more important? Is it the amount of faith a person has or the thing that they have faith in proving actually trustworthy that matters more? Which matters more? The amount of faith or that the thing's trustworthy? That's the second one, isn't it? The important thing about faith is the thing you trust. That, that really matters. I, I might do all my due diligence in studying that chair and I go to sit down and it still might collapse under me. Like once happened to me in a cafe in Newtown. Very embarrassing as the legs went... <laughs> uh, and if it did collapse though, it wouldn't be because your faith's too weak but because the chair was. Something's only worthy of your faith if it can deliver. That's how you know faith's any good, by its object. When Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, he's not talking about how much she believed or the power of her faith, but that she put it in exactly the right place, which was where? Where did the lady place her faith? in Jesus, in him. So the real question we need to ask ourselves today is this, is Jesus worthy of all our trust, our faith, our dependence? Can he bear the weight? He says he can save us. He says he's worth following. He says he's even worth giving up everything for, if need be, to follow. He says there's life with him, He says there's condemnation without him and he's calling people to drop everything and come follow. Is he worthy of that kind of trust? 
Well, in our passage today, Matthew chapter 9, we meet a bunch of different people who really are divided over that question of whether Jesus is worthy of that kind of trust. They're divided. There's believers and there are doubters. The believers, they really believe. They stake everything on him and they're filled with joy as Jesus changes their lives entirely. But the doubters, they won't believe Jesus, they won't trust him, they won't follow. In fact, they all go home riled up by Jesus. They're angry. He makes them very, very uncomfortable. And Jesus has that effect on people even now, doesn't he? Right? Divides opinion. No one's ever neutral to Jesus. And, and I think it's impossible to be. Because either he is worthy of your complete trust and you'd be an idiot not to go with him or he's a liar, a fraud, a fantasy that only the deluded would trust. <coughs> well, <coughs> it's not COVID, I had that a few weeks ago. Uh, let, let's meet the believers. The first is, a, is the very man who ended up writing this biography of Jesus that we're reading at the moment, Matthew, he's the author of Matthew's Gospel. And he puts in how he came to believe and follow. <coughs> Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. <laughs> ah, it's very short and pithy. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. Here's this guy, Matthew. He's sitting in his office, doing his job. All of a sudden, his whole life's upended. When Jesus says, follow me, uh, he knows it's not all, hey, mate, I just need your help for a second. Can you come around the back? I, just follow me around here. I need, I need help with that sign <laughs> or my tripped over and a purpose. Or, yeah. It's nothing like that. It's a demand to, to give up his whole life and career and join the band of people who are physically, literally following Jesus around the countryside. Jesus had said the same to the fishermen back in chapter 4, if you want to go back and look, and they dropped their nets there and then, left the boats behind, left the other workers, even their parents, and said, we're going with him. And they've been with him now, months, even a year, and Matthew does exactly the same. Now, we're not told exactly what persuaded him, right? Just Jesus said, follow, and he said, okay, and got up. Uh, but you can tell it wasn't a leap in the dark because Jesus has been doing amazing things in this very town where Matthew works for some time now and the crowds have come interstate and even internationally to be there to check out this guy Jesus in the town of Capernaum where he works. Uh, the last two chapters, if you want to go back and read them, he's been healing people miraculously, he's been driving out demons from people who are possessed, he's been stilling storms that hardened sailors were convinced would kill them uh, and everyone in town has seen them, they know it's real and even Jesus' enemies who hate his guts, they, they admit that, they see that he's doing it. But I suspect it was what just happened before Jesus met Matthew that tipped him over the edge. We looked at it last week, if you want to listen to uh, last week online, it was fantastic as Dave took us through the first part of chapter 9. But Jesus did something extraordinary there uh, just five minutes before he met Matthew. He said to a paralysed man who'd been brought to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And if there was divided opinion beforehand about Jesus, that really 
sent shockwaves through the community and divided them completely. And fair enough, because only God does have the right to forgive sins. And only God has the power to do that because all sin in the end is against God. And so only he can do something about it. You, you hurt me, I can't take that out on lock, right? <laughs> That's not fair. I've got, and she can't step in and forgive you. On my, no, I, it's got to be me that forgives you, doesn't it? God's got to forgive. So who does this guy think he is? But then he proved that he could forgive sins with a simple test to the stunned crowd. He said, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man lying here, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your stretcher and go home. And you think all the things that happened as Jesus spoke those words, because he did stand up and go home. His bones straightened out. His tendons that hadn't been used for years suddenly were flexible enough to, to be able to do it. You know, he, the, the, the brain neurons that you know, control your muscle movements, they, they hadn't been doing that for years. They had to work. His atrophied muscles... Uh, suddenly was strengthened, his sagging skin went taut. And if Jesus can do that, he can forgive sins. And maybe that was what had convinced Matthew because he was a man in need of forgiveness. Everyone he knew made that abundantly clear to Matthew. He'd been labelled as one of the worst kinds of humanity because... He's a tax collector <laughs> and that's a hated occupation in every society throughout history. No matter where you're going, well, people hate tax collectors. But particularly then because the tax collectors were completely corrupt. They were uh, stooges for the Roman Empire. They sold out. They were locals who betrayed their people to raise money for Caesar and his army that had conquered them. Uh, and at, because they were hated and traitors, they thought, well, everyone hates us anyway, so... There's no written code telling them what the, the tax rates are. We'll just charge what we like and rake in the, the extra. And so they just ripped everyone off and they were living it up. He's scum. He knows it. Everyone knows it. So when Jesus says, follow me, Matthews doesn't have to wait to be asked twice. He's all in. He knows Jesus' power and he knows that Jesus can forgive him. But then there's the man in verse 19. We're told he's a leader uh, his name we find out from one of the other biographies of Jesus. His name's Jairus, uh, and the kind of leader he is is a religious leader. He's he's the leader of the local synagogue, the local church. He's the, I guess he's the minister. Um, he, he's very different to Matthew, isn't he? All right, everyone hates Matthew's guts, but they love Jairus. Uh, they respect him. They follow him. They listen to his teachings, and uh, and Jairus has faith in Jesus despite all his friends and associates being completely anti-Jesus. They're the ones who are kicking up the biggest stink about Jesus saying that he can forgive sins. Um, but he's so desperate because he's lost his beloved daughter. She's died. And he knows from what's been happening that Jesus has extraordinary supernatural power and he knows that Jesus could bring her back even now just with a word. He's convinced 
by the evidence that Jesus is worthy of his trust, even if it's unpopular. Verse 18, as Jesus was speaking, suddenly one of the leaders came, knelt down before him, saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. No shadow of a doubt. Complete faith, complete confidence. And Jesus, he proves himself absolutely worthy of that trust as he brings her back, despite the laughter of the mourners and the mockery, saying it's impossible. There's a third true believer. She's not named, but, but she's a poor lady who's been suffering terribly with non-stop menstrual bleeding for 12 years straight. She hasn't, it's not been a monthly thing, it's been an everyday thing. It's, and... Uh, no doctor has helped, no treatment has worked. So verse 20, just then a woman who'd suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the edge of his robe for she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her, have courage, daughter, he said, your faith has saved you. And the woman was weighed well from that moment. It, it wasn't because she believed in the law of attraction. You know, that somehow she could just cast positive vibes out there that uh, she would create a vortex of well-being around her. And it's not that she believed in herself even. I mean, she's, she's even too embarrassed to come up to Jesus and ask for his help. But she trusts him and her faith is well-placed. She's healed and Jesus says, have courage, your faith has saved you. The two blind men at the end. They called Jesus the son of David, which is an Old Testament way of talking about God's promised king and saviour. The Messiah who was going to come and heal the blind and the mute and, uh, and so on. And, and so they beg him for mercy, verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? What's his question? Will you trust me? Will you, will you have faith? Faith, believe, trust, rely, depends. It's all the same word in Greek. We just translate into different things in English. Because, uh, well, if you've learned English as a second language, white guys like to complicate everything. Anyway, so <laughs> but it's one word in Greek um, that means all those things. Will they trust him? Do they believe? And they say, yes, Lord. And again, Jesus proves worthy of trust. He touched their eyes, verse 29, saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. It's not the quality of their faith. It's not the quality of their faith. It's who they have faith in that matters and makes all the difference. So that's the believers. There's plenty of them. People who knew Jesus' ability, who'd seen the evidence, who concluded he was the one who'd come to fulfill God's promises they were people who were desperate enough to risk unpopularity and vitriol because they knew the truth. And so they trusted and they acted. And why wouldn't they trust someone with their lives who's proven himself over and over again? And so they came. Some boldly, some timidly, some shouting from a distance, some sneaking up behind him. But, but all of them placing their trust in Jesus. And every time their trust proves well-founded. But then there's the doubters, and there's plenty of them too. But one of the most fascinating things about all the doubters we're about to meet is that none of them doubt Jesus can do what he has been saying and doing, right? They, they know it's real. They've all seen it. It's supernatural. It's extraordinary. No one else can do that. 
but they still have doubts, even grave doubts, but it's for other reasons. So the first lot of doubters are the Pharisees. The Pharisees, I don't know if you know much about the history of the Pharisees. They, they weren't, I, I think we tend to think they must have been, you know, uh, priests or something like that. They're not, they're not religious workers, they're not functionaries at the church or anything like that. The Pharisees were the right-wing moralists, church-going businessmen with very strong conservative views. Uh, I, I guess they're a bit like the Masons, but not secretive, right? They're very public about it. We, we belong to that group. And on the whole, the Pharisees, as a group, refused to believe. Their doubts came not because of the powers, they didn't doubt those, they came because of who Jesus was hanging out with. They couldn't believe that a prophet or the Messiah or someone from God would hang out with those people. In verse 11, Jesus is having dinner with Matthew, who's given everything to follow him, and, and Matthew's invited his mates over, and you can hear the sneer in their voice, can't you? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he know who they are they're traitors they're, they're losers they're ugh. you know surely if he did know he wouldn't be there because he'd know that god only is interested in people like us jesus responds verse 12 when now when he heard this he said it's not those who are well who need a doctor but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. But they don't want to go and learn that, do they? They don't understand mercy, and they don't want it themselves, because they don't think they need it which is why they won't come to Jesus. They're so busy pretending to themselves and to each other and to God that they can't see the truth that's staring them in the face, that they're just as much in need of the mercy of God as the low lives that Jesus is with. They are just as much sinners in need of forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. We're, we're too good for that. Does that sound familiar? You ever thought that yourself? Why would I need Jesus? I'm better than that. I don't need forgiveness. In fact, you know what? God would be pretty lucky to have someone like me on his team, right? <laughs> he should come begging me. <laughs> so there's the moralists. They're doubters. But there's another group of doubters. And, and they're the ultra-religious people. They think Jesus is just a bit too fast and loose with the trappings of religion. They come in verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples, they, they don't fast? You know, now, now, fasting for religious reasons is nothing new in the history of the world. Most religions have food laws, uh, what you can eat, what you can't eat, when you can eat it, when you can't eat at all. Uh, and, and all of it is about proving yourself to God. 
It's an act of devotion and homage to, to be able to go without for a bit or to, to not eat bacon, you know, in his life, or, you know, whatever it might happen to be, you know, and so there are designated feasts and designated fast. And these guys are stunned by Jesus' carefree attitude to the rules. How can Jesus be from God? He's not religious enough. Jesus said to them, verse 15, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away and then they can fast. That is, he's not interested in baleful mourners who go around looking sad all the time. That's not what God's into. It's not what Jesus is into. And all that old religious stuff is gone now because I'm here. And he says all that stuff that's a bit cryptic about mending clothes and wineskins, which won't go through in detail, but it's really his way of saying, I'm not just here to um, back up your old-timey religion of rituals and regulations and just kind of add a little bit to it. No, I've come to bring something completely new. It's a, it's a fresh start. The old's done now that I'm here. I've come to open up the new way to God so that you can know him as your father. Um, you can have access to the true source of life and joy. Religious rituals will never save you. They'll never do it. Even baptism, it's great, but, but it doesn't save anyone. Right? Baptism is a sign, it's a, it's a symbol. It's, it, it's a symbol that points to what Jesus alone can do through dying for our sins and wa washing us clean. He did that as he died on the cross. It's kind of like a wedding ring on your, on your left hand ring finger. You, know, you, you, you can't just put a ring on that finger, can you, and go, oh, I was single until then. Oh, wow, now I'm married to someone. I don't know who, but, you know, kind of. It doesn't make you married, putting that ring on that finger, does it? And likewise, you know, if you uh, happen to have made promises in front of the, someone legally, you know, responsible, and it was all signed off in front of witnesses and God and stuff, and so you're actually married, but you don't happen to have your ring, or like one of our young night church guys got married and day one of the... Uh, the honeymoon lost it on the beach, right? Didn't, he wasn't suddenly divorced. His wife threatened that, but no, no, that was a, <laughs> like, you're not not married because you don't happen to have your ring on that finger, do you? But it's, it's a pretty handy sign. You see people with rings on their finger, you think, ah, they must be married, right? You, you assume people who have baptism is a symbol of something else, but it's not the water, it's just out of the tap. It's not magic, it's just, it's a sign pointing to the cleansing that Jesus brings. It's a handy sign. Baptism's like that. Now let's come back to the passage. Because there's a third group of doubters. It's another lot of Pharisees, as it turns out, towards the end of the chapter. Jesus has just cast out a demon in front of them all. Everyone's seen it happen. Everyone's been stunned. They, they see it's real. Everyone's heard the mute man who the, the demon had caused him not to be able to speak for years. He was now speaking. They don't doubt that. What they doubt, and they radically doubt is the source of Jesus' power, where it comes from. And I don't know about you, but, but to me, I, I, they're really clutching at straws to keep going in their doubts at this point. Verse 34, the Pharisee said, well, he drives out demon by, by the ruler of demons. Right? He's got the devil in him. <laughs> right? Of course, no one today would say that. They might just say, well, what if Jesus was an alien with superpowers and technology and, you know, uh, kind of maybe he had, he had his probing equipment up his shirt, you know, like, and you just create all these kind of alternate scenarios and shift the blame from where he's. 
How desperate do you have to be to believe, to not believe, to make up that kind of excuse? It's got nothing to do with rationality. It's just pig-headedness. It's stubbornness. They just don't want to believe that he's from God, and so they shift the blame. And I reckon if there's anyone who's got blind faith taking a leap in the dark in this whole passage, it's them. They're just making stuff up now. But it's just an excuse not to trust him. In fact, all three groups are just making excuses, aren't they? That's all they're doing, the moralists, the ultra-religious ones and the blame shifters. They, they just don't want to. They, they want to give up everything like Matthew did. It's a hard problem. It's not an evidence problem. Plenty of evidence. And as a result, they don't receive anything from Jesus. No help, no hope, no nothing. They're on their own when it comes to God, thinking they've got no issue when they meet him. But the reality is that that is the greatest issue that every single one of us faces. Because every human being, you and me included, is going to have to stand before God one day and give an account of our lives. And you don't want to meet him like that unforgiven. You you don't. And so I guess my question is, where do you stand? It's, it's great that you came today. I'm sure these guys really appreciate it and the food's going to be really good <laughs> uh, afterwards. Uh, but did you come as a believer today or did you come as a doubter? It doesn't really matter how you came. It matters how you go home. If you're a believer, that's wonderful. But do make sure that your faith in Jesus isn't just what you thought was a leap in the dark. All right? Leaps in the dark, you slam into walls in unknown caves. All right? <laughs> it's going to hurt, right? And, and, and make sure that your faith isn't just a psychological crutch. If, you, if you're just in a psychological crutch, just go and watch a rom-com and eat chocolate. Like, <laughs> it's a lot easier than following Christ. But... <laughs> Uh, and, and do make sure it's not based on some mystical, magical view of faith that you think, well, everything's going to go well now for me all the time. You know, the vortex of blessing is going, you know. You know God, God loves his people, don't, don't hear me wrong. But and, and do make sure it's not just convenient faith because, well, it's just what I do and how I was brought up and makes the wife happy to bring <laughs> to come along and pretend. Uh, to believe something without good reasons is stupid. It's wishful thinking and God is not interested in that. And if you're a doubter, well, are you a doubter really because you've done the work yourself, you've looked at the evidence and you, you could not help but come to the conclusion it's all bogus. I seriously doubt it. Lots of people have set out to prove it and end up becoming believers because it's just overwhelming, the evidence. Do make sure you look into yourself and, and, and don't be a doubter just because it's convenient. Most people's doubts about Jesus 
and about Christianity are really just a smokescreen. So stop pretending. They just don't want him or think that they need him. Don't walk away thinking, oh, well, I'm good enough on my own, God will have me. You'll, you'll never earn your way to heaven. You're a sinner in need of his mercy. And don't walk away thinking, well, surely I've been religious enough. You know, I fasted and groveled with the religion I was brought up with and I, I gave and I was baptised as a kid or at least I was there that one day in 2022 when I saw a baptism. Yeah, kind of that. surely that's enough. No, no, the bridegroom's come. And he's opened up the way to God because that stuff never worked. And don't walk away just making flimsy, pathetic excuses. Get a grip, face the facts, he is who he says and he's good for his word and your future is in his hands. And and frankly, who is more trustworthy than Jesus? Who, Who is more selfless than Jesus? Truly, who has done anything for you that rises to the magnitude of what Jesus has done for you? Who who loves you that much that they would die for you and bear the wrath of God for you? Take the curse that God has placed on humanity. The the critical thing about faith is, is the object of your faith that it proves reliable. So why wouldn't you want to trust him with your whole life? And come follow him. I pray, Father, these are amazing things that you teach us about Jesus, about you, about faith and about doubt. I pray that we wouldn't be those who are just making excuses before you, but help us to know the reality about Jesus. We pray for those who are genuinely confused and don't know the evidence that they would go and do the work, whether they came as believers or doubters that they would do the work. We pray that our faith in Jesus might be well grounded, knowing that he is good for what he promises, that he is the King, the Messiah, the Saviour. We thank you for your mercy that we all so desperately need. Please forgive us our sins as he has promised to do and which he has paid for in his death. We thank you that he is the Lord and Saviour. Help us to trust him. Amen.